And for us here, we will continue in our series in the Gospel, the wonderful Gospel of John. And we're looking at John chapter 10, verses 19 to 42. And we ask the question, that topic for this morning, are you sure? Are you sure? One of the great themes in the first ten chapters of the Gospel of John, as you probably gather already, if you haven't done so, is the identity, the identity of Jesus. And that question still is asked today, despite the years, despite the evidence, despite the witness. It's still being asked. And we have to have that assurance in us because our identity is linked to who Jesus is. If we're not sure of that, we're not going to be sure of who we are. And while John tells us that this is Jesus, the rest of the people aren't sure. So they continue to ask, who are you? And many people today continue to ask, who was he? Was he a madman? Was he demon-possessed? Was he truly the Son of God? Before we get to that, it was in the news uh, this week, or the past week, uh, a 69-year-old Dutchman is battling to legally reduce his age by 20 years so he can get more work and attract more women on Tinder. If he's able to change his legal age, he doesn't have to lie, apparently, about his age. Just think about that. We live in very confusing times. Emile Rattleband argues that if transgender people are allowed to change sex, he should be allowed to change his date of birth because doctors said he has the body of a 45-year-old. The judge said that he had some sympathy. This has actually gone before the course. The judge said he had some sympathy with Mr. Rattleband as people could now change their gender, which would not have been uh, possible years ago, and now it is possible. Now, strange times, isn't it? Because just because you change your legal status from a woman to a man, or vice versa, or from 69 to 49, or 45, whatever it is, it does not change who you really are. It does not change your DNA and it does not change your DOB, date of birth. Your DNA, your DOB are unchangeable. Somebody might have made a mistake somewhere in your date of birth and some I know that particularly with refugees and others, their documents are all gone so they give an estimate. But 20 years, for goodness sake, We are living in confusing times when it comes to physical identity. But 
there's a deeper issue that affects our spiritual identity as well. Now, in the Gospels, there is little relationship between the words of the Jews who oppose Jesus, the words of those things that they declare and believe, and their works, between their words and their works. The works are also their deeds. They profess one thing and practice another. This is called hypocrisy. There was a rather pompous looking deacon, we've got none of those in our church, uh, who was teaching a, a Sunday school class and he was trying to impress upon the class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. And he asked the question, he says, why do people call me a Christian? There was a, a long pause until one little boy said, maybe it's because they don't know you. Oops. Okay. Out of the mouth of bays indeed. Men and women through the ages have been divided over the question, who is Jesus? And if we, I think if we are able to resolve that question, the next one follows, who am I? If you are a Christian, then your identity is linked to that of Jesus. If you are confused about the real Jesus, you will be confused about your own and your own destiny. There's a lot at stake. And once you sort that out, then if you call yourself a Christian, you need to start living as a Christian. Your words and your works, there has to be a match. This is why there is so much at stake. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years from when the time when people were questioning Jesus' identity. So let's get into the passage. Verses 19 to 21, suspense. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed, raving mad, why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They're still going back to the miracle in chapter 9. And Jesus has spoken some very strong words. He has claimed to be the Messiah, the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd who was spoken of in the Old Testament. At the same time, the Jewish religious leaders are no different to the wicked shepherds that Ezekiel speaks of. It is no wonder that those hearing these words react strongly because Jesus is drawing comparison. We spoke about this last week between those wicked shepherds who, those who come, who, they don't protect the sheep and if they do come to the sheep then it's because they come still destroy to kill. They don't go in through the gate. I thank God that we have someone who is the gatekeeper, the good shepherd. Jesus was a polarising figure. He could have simply blended into the crowd, could have towed the traditional line, 
He could have gone on Facebook and tried to be liked by everybody and get as many likes as possible. But that was not his goal. He was, his goal wasn't about being liked. His goal was the pursuit of truth, the truth that will not let you compromise, the truth that will see him being sacrificed on the cross. You have to, he had to make a call, he had to make a stand. And as Christians, we have to do the same. Many will oppose you, but some will be drawn to the truth. Those who are his sheep will be drawn to him because he is the good shepherd. While those who are not his sheep will dismiss his words of those of a lunatic or someone possessed by a demon. But there are those who see and hear the same things and reason that Jesus' words must be judged in the light of his works. His works confirm his words. There is consistency. And for these people then, he wasn't a lunatic. Verses 22 to 30. This is a very important passage in the Bible. You can be sure. Let me assure you, you can be sure. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. To this, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now this is winter time in Jerusalem which is around our Christmas time. He's there for the Feast of Dedication or today it is known as Hanukkah. This one celebrated the, uh, the rededication of the second temple that was uh, desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes and so the Maccabeans kicked him out and so they rededicated the temple. Now, this is not one of those festivals established in the Old Testament law, but nevertheless, it has a tremendous importance for Judaism then, and certainly today, it is still very much the case. And the Jews surround Jesus in, in a hostile manner. There is an intensity growing in their hatred towards him. 
demanding. They want to hear it from his own lips, whether he is the Messiah. Now, the, the thing is that it's not as if Jesus has withheld information from them. Over and over again, he's made statements which make it clear that he is the Messiah. He was certainly clear enough for those who were his sheep, those who sincerely desired to, to hear the truth. It goes back to their old point, isn't it? That the heart of their unbelief, the heart of the unbelief, unbelief today, is not that people lack sufficient evidence to come to a conclusion about God. The rejection of him as the Messiah is due to their stubborn refusal to believe his words and his works which prove his words. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. And they refuse to believe because they are not his sheep. Come judgment day, many people will come before the throne of God. We didn't know, they will say. Some of them will even say, I didn't, nobody told me. And Jesus will say, I sent so and so, you saw this, you saw that, you saw my marvellous creation, the word of God was available to you, I even sent one of my people, one of your cousins, you even went to church once or twice, and you tell me, you tell me I didn't tell you, I didn't warn you, I did tell you, but you don't believe. That's the problem. There is evidence, there is evidence everywhere. The problem is not lack of sufficient evidence, the problem is a problem of the heart. And they refuse to believe because they're not his sheep. That is a sad truth. And the long-term results, the long-term blessings of believing are absolutely out of this world, literally. The great shepherd gives eternal life to his sheep. They enter into the abundant life not for a season, but permanently. And this is irreversible. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Do you believe that? How can I be sure? Because there is a relationship that is established between the sheep, the Lord's sheep, between the sheep, the shepherd, the good shepherd, and God, the Father, who has given the sheep to his son, the good shepherd. It's all linked together. The security, the eternal security of the sheep is not the result of our sheepish efforts. 
but rather the sovereign will and the working of God. I have to repeat these words because I've had many discussions on this matter, as you might gather. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you get that? I and the Father are one. However, despite the clarity of these words, these words have actually been very contentious in Christianity. Some Christians strive to show that John is not emphasising the sovereignty of God here in relation to salvation and security of the, the sheep that God has chosen. There are many who believe that Christians can lose their salvation because they say, if, if you just simply go and tell them, once saved, always saved, then they're just going to take advantage. They're going to just come to church, get baptised, get their ticket to heaven, and then go and do and live however they want. And say, I'm fine, I've got my ticket to heaven. I'll behave and do and do whatever I want. And what are you going to do about that? Heck, we can't share that gospel with them. I won't, simply won't take God seriously. I won't take the call to sanctity, and purity and holiness seriously. And we've all seen evidence of this. I can't argue with that point. That there are many so-called Christians who actually do not behave, do not behave like sons and daughters of God. But as much as I would like to, from a practical standpoint, change my theology to suit the practical realities of what behaviour and, and motivate people to get the fear of God into them and say, brother, you're not saved. If you don't come to church for two Sundays in a row, well, you're out. Okay? You are disqualified. Huh? I can't say that because that's just not in the Bible. Because you see, for a Christian to lose his salvation, he would have to have been unregenerate in the first place. He was never saved in the first place. There has to be a match between the words and the works. Between the words, your declaration, your identity, and how you live the Christian life. Judas Iscariot is a perfect example. He had knowledge but lacked true faith. There is, I think, no other person who rejected the truth, who had more exposure to the love, to the grace of God than Judas. He was part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. He ate 
and travel with Jesus for years. He saw the miracles. He, he, he heard the words of, of, of God from Jesus' very lips, from the best preacher that the world had ever known. And yet, he not only turned away, but was instrumental in the plot to kill Jesus. It is true what the Bible says. They went from us because they were never of us. They were never part of us. The true apostate, apostate is someone who turns away from us because the true apostate will continue to sin deliberately, willingly, with gay abandon, sometimes literally. In John three fifteen to 16, we read, and we read, we did this passage, that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. I have to get back to that. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. If you believe in Christ today and have eternal life but lose it tomorrow, then it was never eternal at all, was it? It was simply temporary. It was simply conditional. So if you're able to lose your salvation, all the promises of eternal life that we find in the Gospels are wrong. It also means, and we can confirm this, maybe even in our own lives, it also means that even though a true believer might lapse into sin and be out of fellowship with God, like the prodigal son, he will eventually come back to God in repentance because his heavenly father will continually draw him in, convict him until he can't stay away any longer. I'm not saying that you can recover the lost years. I have heard stories from those getting close to death in their life, those who had come to Christ at an early age and for decades walked away from the faith and then they come back in a strong way and there's tears in their eyes and he says, I'm so unbelievably unhappy with God but there is something, I cannot bring the lost years back for the time I lived away out of fellowship with God even though he was always drawing me, calling me back. Nothing can bring back the lost years. Leon Morris, um, Australian theologian from down south, down Melbourne, he put it this way, it is one of the most precious things about the Christian faith that our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on to Christ but on his firm grip on us. This doesn't mean that the Bible ignores human responsibility. Oh, it doesn't ignore that. But it does mean that our salvation and our security are in his hands 
and not ours. For that we should rejoice forever and ever. Sing his praises. We shouldn't resist but revel in the truth. Suspense over, verses 31 to 33. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many, many good works from the Father. For which of these, for which one of these do you actually exactly want to stone me? And they said, well, we are not stoning you for any good work. They replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's one of the passages that you can quote to people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus here calmly, in all his coolness, he calmly asked them, which one of his works are you going to, you know, sentence him to death for? Now imagine the scene. Imagine the scene. Around the temple area, Around the temple area, it was all pretty neat. There weren't a lot of pile of rocks about. So they had to walk down the valley, pick up all these loose stones and rocks and come up to the temple area with enough stones to do this, this deed of stoning Jesus. They had to go outside to get their rocks. Took time, took effort. And John tells us that they sought to stone him several times. And every time, can you imagine every time they wanted to stone him, they would have piled up. Did you bring some stones? How about you? Yeah, yeah, we've got enough stones to stone him, by the way. So there was a pile of stones. And then you're the cleaner of the temple. Oh no, not another pile of stones. What am I going to do with this? It's just ridiculous. What they're saying is, it is not for your works we are going to stone you, but for your words. In effect, we don't make the connection between your words and your works. We're going to look at them separately because that's what we do. And Jesus accused the, the Pharisee of doing exactly their, that. Their work, their words and their works were viewed separately. Look at what Jesus said to them in Matthew 23 verses 1 to 3. Matthew 23 says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. This is what Jesus said. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. So Jesus is telling his people, you must listen to the Pharisees who sit to teach the law. Listen to them. But do not do what? Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. There's a disconnect. Because what they're teaching is in the Scriptures. As long as they teach the Scriptures, it's true. But don't look for consistency in the way that they live their life every day. These Jews didn't care about that inconsistency. 
fact, they were so consistent in their inconsistency. They reveled in their hypocrisy. I wonder if we would feel comfortable with that. Robert Redford. Many of you would know Robert Redford. Some of the young people said, who's Robert Redford? Robert Redford was walking one day through a hotel lobby and a woman saw him and followed him to the elevator. Are you the real Robert Redford? She asked in this great excitement. And as the doors of the elevator closed, he replied, only when I'm alone. There's a lot of truth. When am I Paul Mozartuk? When I'm in public? When I'm, or when I'm alone? The real me. What are you like when you're alone? Are the words that you believe, your identity, are they matched with your, with your works? How you behave each and every day? Or is there a disconnect? I hope they're consistent, which is what Christ demands of us. So who are the gods in verses 34 to 38? Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If you call them gods to whom the word of God came in Scripture cannot be set aside. That's an important declaration there. Scripture cannot be set aside. You cannot dismiss Scripture. What about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Again, Jesus never said, I am God's son. There it is. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, that's irrelevant. If I do them, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. So even when they want to stone him for blasphemy because he claims to be God, Jesus does not deny his claim to deity. He actually points them back to Psalm 82 where the psalmist, uh, at, in Psalm, uh, the psalmist uh, Asaph, he is actually attacking the rulers of, of Israel who, who were the gods as far as the population was concerned. What does he mean by that? Well, they were appointed, they were representatives of, of God as judges and rulers and they were misusing their positions of leadership and authority. Instead of defending the poor and the fatherless, what they do is they oppress the weak. They judge unjustly. So if the Old Testament speaks of mere men as gods, why are the Jews seeking to kill Jesus who claims to be God, who is from God, comes from the Father? Because his, his own works. If the evidence of those who were so-called gods went against the law of God because of the behaviour, Jesus' works and words were consistent. Just as a side point here, if you've ever entered a discussion with a Jehovah's Witness, JW, 
and engage with one of the, the verses, John 1.1. 1, 1. Says the reference to a God, they would say that's in a that's in a context of Psalm 82, they will tell you. They will say there are many gods. And Jesus was simply one of the gods with a little g. He's not big G, God. But according to them, Jesus was created and therefore a little God. And in fact, the, the JWs believe that in eternity, once we get to heaven, we're actually going to be gods as well. That's what they believe. It's obviously very wrong and simply follows the satanic lie that was in the Garden of Eden when Satan came and told, told Eve and, and Adam that if you ate of the fruit that you will become like God. And the principle on which men are gods in a, in a certain limited sense is when they act as leaders on God's behalf. So God appoints, we are under God, but we speak the words of God, hopefully. Like when Moses, Moses was God to Pharaoh. Actually, in Exodus 4, 16, God actually tells him, you will be like God to Pharaoh, he tells him. When you go and tell him, let my people go. Because Moses was God's representative. And Jesus is using the much more argument here. He says, if me men who are in positions of leadership can in some sense be called gods in, in, in relationship to those who they lead, then how much more can Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, be called God? Not little g, but Big G, God. And in verse 39 to 42, the escape, and escape. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And Jesus went back across the Jordan to, to the place where John had been baptising in the early days. And there he stayed and many people came to him and they said that John never performed a sign. All that John said about this man is true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Our brother Ted uh, told me he, he counted in the Gospel of John at least 15 times where Jesus managed to escape the grasp of those who were trying to, to seize him. 15 times. It gets rather tedious, isn't it? And some of those times they were gathering stones and there were stones everywhere must have been frustrating. And there's a touch of irony here as well. In the genius of John, did you see how he goes back again to the ministry of John the Baptist that he talks about in the first couple of chapters? And then he, he says, in the genius of John the Gospel writer, he said that as, as the good shepherd, he not only saves his sheep, but safely keeps them in his grasp, in his hands. So while the sheep cannot be snatched from his hand, 
Jesus so easily escapes the hand of his enemies because his time had not yet come. What a contrast between the power of God and the power of the enemies. Whose hand would you rather be in? I'd rather be in God's hand. Another contrast is found where John draws a contrast between the, the Jordan River, the wilderness region, and the sophisticated people of Jerusalem. One is an urban setting where there is a cluster of people and just it's all it's like a pressure cooker situation in Jerusalem and yet Jesus goes to the wilderness area where John was and many go there and they believe in him. They follow him. Sometimes getting out of the the urban situation, the city, you go to the countryside and I feel like, oh, that's what I needed. You don't need Panadol. just need to smell the fresh air. Just uh, open your eyes in the middle of the night, look at the heavens and position yourself with regards to God's creation and in eternity and say, wow, Lord, you've made all this and you still care for me. Final thoughts. There was a preacher who applied for a position in the church and uh, he was in the process of getting interviewed by the pastoral search committee. The head of the pastoral search committee was an English teacher and you know what they can be like. Uh, He he was very concerned about... uh, about how that the pastor spoke proper English. They don't like this Paul Mosichuk who just, you know, can't speak. He's an ethnic, he can't speak proper English. Um, so he asked the, the, the head of this partial search committee, the English teacher asked, when the hen is on the nest, does she sit or set? He asked the candidate, which is a very relevant question in a partial search committee. The hopeful pastor was frustrated, didn't know what to say, so he thought for a while his career was on the line. And finally he replied, it really doesn't matter if she's sitting or sitting. What I want to know is this, when she cackles, is she laying or lying? (laughs) Bang. Those of you who have got chickens or have had them will know what I'm talking about. When we, when words come out, even when we're cackling in worship, are we telling everybody that there is something in us that's the reason for the song, for the joy? Or when people come and check us out, they find that there's nothing there. We've simply been lying about who we really are. Like the hen, may the words we affirm, that we declare, 
when we witness, when we pray, when we worship, when we sing, affirm who we are before God and before the world. But there is a consistency between the words and the works, just like they were in Jesus' time, and not like the Pharisees. That our identity is true, whether they look whatever way, whatever piece of us they cut us, that every bit of us will, in our DNA will show he is a true believer, he is a Christian, he is a son and daughter of God. Let us not only be sure of our salvation, but also in our behaviour, may it be consistent with our belief. Amen.